Welcome to the Nobody Told Me That podcast. My name is Teresa Duncan, and my goal is to share information that you probably weren't thinking about. I love preparing my friends for situations that may come completely out of the blue. I also want to share with you many of the tidbits I picked up over the years. If you absolutely have to tune out before the end of the show, make sure you check out the show notes for more details and information on today's topic. And thank you so much for making me a part of your day. We are back for another episode of Nobody Told Me That, and I have a longtime friend with me, Edie Gibson. How are you, Edie? I am fantastic and honored that I get to spend this time with you, Teresa. Thank you. We never have enough time together. Oh, Just to give you some background, Edie, I, what is this, like 12 years, something like that, that I've known? We used to lecture together at the Goodness, I can't even remember. Association of Dental and Plant Auxiliaries, yes. Thank you, yes. There's so many acronyms floating around in my brain. Yeah, we used to we used to lecture together there. She would do the hygiene side, and I was always doing something with management or coding. And, you know, we'd meet up in the hallways, have drinks afterwards and all that. And, and that's how you build relationships, you know, with your friends on the road. So it's so nice to have stayed connected with you. Yes. You have such an important message. And that is why I made the call to you. It is something that I think for many strong people out there, they need to hear that this is something that affects you or could affect people around you. And that is the very sensitive subject of depression, substance abuse, basically not being in a good place. So I'm I'm honored that you are willing to give your advice on this because I know you have done a lot of studying on it. I have. I've lived it. Teresa, you know, I have my master's in psychology and I'm, we used to be called unregistered psychotherapists in Colorado. Now we are called unlicensed, which I don't like that designation. Yeah, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> it doesn't sound good, right? It's the same thing. I've done the same thing. They just had to switch the name. So um, I earned my psychotherapy designation in Colorado, which is where my hygiene license still lives. I earned that to come alongside my husband, who, as of today, he is 14 years sober. Today's his 14th birthday. Huge. huge. It's so huge. Uh, and traveling through with him and going down through his journey with addiction and then into recovery, it hit home to me that and I, there has to be more people like me out there that have gone through this. And so I pursued that degree to come alongside him to help the women who were in relationships with men who were in addiction or in recovery, because, you know, being an angry, peeled spouse is just no fun. So that's why I pursued this and made it. It is, it's a passion of mine. And I'm, I'm blessed with a pretty wide network of cool women who I get to help and mentor and be friends with across the country because of my speaking. And it's near and dear to my heart because I've lived it and there's hope. And I think there's going to be people who listen to this who who can really take away some um, lessons from it. I was prompted to think about this because, you know, you, when you get one call on something, it's a one-off. Then when you get another call, you think, oh, geez, and you start getting more calls or it slips into conversation and you think, okay, this is something that I need to talk to people about. And my office managers are getting very frustrated. They're just tired in general. But what I have heard is that they're noticing their coworkers and their dentists 
Mm. that are having a really hard time with this and not opening up to them and they want to help. You know, as as a former office manager for a dentist, I still love and adore and still work with. I felt a lot of times like his work wife. So mm. it really is sort of a a crazy, you know, take it, take it out on me because you don't take it out on the staff, that that type of thing. So with somebody who is having issues with a coworker, first of all, let's let's talk about what you've seen when someone is starting to go downhill, not necessarily depression, but starting into it, and then they do slide into it. I mean, what what does that look like for the person observing it? That's an awesome question. And that's one that is, is hard and multi-layered. But what happens with what's gone on with COVID, as we know, is the isolation. And we as human beings are not designed, built, bred, created to be alone. Amen. Oh, we are organisms that crave contact. And so like this, Teresa, to spend a Zoom call and actually see you is like, oh my goodness, like I wish I could hug you. You know, that feeds no. my soul. But when we're isolated, like we have been for the t- past 10 months, the body goes through changes and the changes affect people emotionally indifferently. Like they reach for something to re-stimulate them. And so that's the dopamine molecule, easiest way. That's the feel good. That's the who, that's the pleasure, you know, like, and I always tell this story, which you'll laugh. So I'm walking down New York City Street and I look at the Prada store and there's a pair of shoes. I go, woohoo, the dopamine floods. And I'm, oh my goodness, I'm so great. And then the reality <laughs> kicks in. My rational brain takes over and says, you can't buy those. You don't need those Prada shoes. Why are you spending grand on shoes? You're crazy, right? And you keep on walking, right? But that flood of dopamine gives me the, whoo, that's great. And when you go into sadness and depression, you look for something to re-stimulate that because you want that feel good. And often it starts with alcohol. It starts with opiates. It starts with nitrous oxide in the dental practice. Which is very, like, it's right there. It's right there and it's a quick hit. And it's not a problem because, you know, it's legal. Alcohol is legal, so it's not a problem. There's no stigma. Opiates, they're illegal, so it's not a problem. You know, because you get them from a legal prescription, usually. Right. Once you get into that and you start down that path, and then the body becomes physiologically dependent on it, as well as your brain and the brain circuits operating, and they have a, a crossing, I guess you would say, or um, almost like not technically a misfiring, but there's a need to connect those pathways and the dopamine, oh my gosh, how cute. And the dopamine, <laughs> I'm seeing her dogs behind her, they're precious. <laughs> and so you need you need something to continue that flush and that feeling because it's the high and the low. When our colleagues or people who are sad reach out mm-hmm. and they we start into the addiction cycle, it is shameful. You know, we talk a lot about the cycle of despair. Meaning they're embarrassed. Right. That this is happening to them. Exactly. Embarrassed or guilt. Okay. Right. I love this book by John Baker. It's called Life's Healing Choices. It's a great book. John Baker, Life's Healing Choices. I call it the um, Celebrate Recovery, the Baby Celebrate Recovery, right? Which is a Christ-centered recovery program my husband runs. And so in the cycle of despair, so you start out and you're lonely and isolated and sad and you reach for something to fill that void. And then you continue to reach for that same substance to fill that bo- void, whether it's alcohol, opiates, gambling, sex, 
Prada shoes, <laughs> <laughs> buying a horse in my, you know, that my new obsession is buying more horses, right? <laughs> and so you try to stop that and you're like, okay, I'm going to stop. And then you, they can't stop because that's addiction. It's the inability to stop despite negative consequences. Mm-hmm. And then once they stop and then they go back in, then they feel guilty that they haven't been able to control it, right? So an addiction control is a huge thing. And if you can't control it and you're in guilt, then you become angry back at yourself because this just isn't working. What have I done? I'm useless. And then it's, oh my gosh, if I don't quit, if I continue to use, then the fear sets in. Like I'm going to lose everything. I'm going to be fearful of everything. And then the fear creates depression, which increases the sadness. And then you reach for the pill or the drink or alcohol or drug or sex or horses again. So cyclical. Oh my goodness. And it just goes round and round and round. And that's what uh, John Baker calls the cycle of despair. And it's diving into the pit of addiction with no way to get out. Or the feeling, let me rephrase, the feeling of no way to climb out of that pit of despair. Maybe that is explains what I'm seeing now because after, during COVID, what you said applies completely. But now everybody's gone back to work, but still there's, I think it's boomeranging. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing it again where, you know, my colleagues posting, I can just tell the sadness because I know how I know who how they are normally. And then of course the private messages that I get. I feel like now that we're done with the holidays, because it was very distracting, mm-hmm. you know, it, it you don't think about things because the holidays. Although I, I keep hearing the holidays is when people are more prone to slip back into addiction. So I'm yes. not sure. Maybe I'm just seeing something different. But now that we're back into the swing of things, I'm hearing again that, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. I need to get out of this. Mm -hmm. And my boss is acting funny and I'm acting funny. So the boomerang is real. Is that what I'm... Absolutely. The boomerang is real. And, you know, to peel that back a little bit, um, if we go back to the holidays, yes, holiday time, Thanksgiving through New Year's, that is the prime time when depression kicks in for people who are using or abusing, because sometimes when they're in the throes of addiction, mm-hmm. they've been ostracized by the people who used to love them or still love them because they've said, go away, we don't want you. Or they run and hide because it's the holiday and they don't want to be around anybody. Oh, interesting. Again, it's the isolation. And now you throw in this crazy pandemic that we're in and all of the other stuff going on in our country right now, that the isolation is magnified. You know, we're being told that you can't have Christmas with your family. You have to wear a mask inside. Isolate, isolate, isolate. And that creates and engages the fear as well, right? And so how do you cope? So people cope with things differently. I go out and stick my nose in my horse's mane. I need that is how I cope. Or I eat my chocolate. You know, <laughs> I'm, I like my chocolate. <laughs> and so there's different coping mechanisms. And in addiction, when you go back to the same substance, then you need more and more and more of that substance to achieve the same leveled off feeling as you did when you first started to abuse the substance. And so the rebound effect, now we're coming off this mm-hmm. and now they're back in swing. And I know because I get the calls a lot too, Teresa, being a hygienist and being in this business over three decades, my friends are going... I can't do this. I don't want to be under this PPE and this mask and all these things. And I can't see, I can't touch, I can't smile, I can't, you know, so there's, even though we're back in practice, there's still alienation and distance. Mm -hmm. And there's still the fear that comes on top. So there's the fear, the 
the underlying in the back of the mind fear of, oh my gosh, what if I get sick from this patient? Or what if I get make this patient sick? It seems like every interaction with someone is a risk, which Oof. is a horrible way of living, right? It's yes. terrible. And I'm a hugger. I know, me too. You know, I'm a hugger and I've got to go, I, I, you know, it's hard. Or I'm, I love to handshake with it, you know, and it's like, don't touch me. You got to kick feet and you got to right. do elbows, right? Like that's, right. The, <laughs> that's the new way. It just doesn't work for me. <laughs> when you are talking to someone and perhaps they notice some changes in a coworker and a colleague, let's go down that road because that's definitely what I'm hearing a lot is, what I was always aware of was, oh, they're acting funny and we need to watch this. But aside from mood change, I really don't know what else I'm looking for. So can you help me with that? Yep. There are a bunch of different triggers and cues. In this conversation, if y'all are listening to this conversation, I always say when I talk about my addiction, even though we're in dental, right? We're dental professionals, Teresa, and we're speaking to our dental colleagues. Put your human being hat on and ears on and listen to this as well. So hear it for your personal, and it, it could be completely out of the dental setting. It could be right in your own home or your neighbor's home. I urge us to listen to this as human beings as well as dental healthcare professionals. So when we, we talk about what occurs, it's the distancing. It's the, I, I see an inability to communicate and look people in the eye. I see the reduced communication. I see the chronic late chronic sick, chronic shortcut, decline in work, quality of work and work mm. ethic, right? Goes out the window. You can see a physical change if it's gone on long enough, right? There's the physical change starts to occur. You mean like appearance or the face not looking good? I mean, what, all of that? Yep. Tired, sallow eyes, because with overconsumption of an addicted substance can do to the body and sleep, is crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about when people drink and they get drunk. Do you have a restful night? No. There, I mean, if you track your sleeping and your snoring and your awake patterns, it's sporadic. Now imagine that night after night after night and your body doesn't function well. We know what sleep and breathing does to the health, right? Because we're connected. We are healthcare providers. And what goes on up in the mouth and in the airway affects the body as a whole. And so I've seen sunken eyes, sallow skin. I've seen breakouts increase. I see people tend to pinch and pick or depending on the the drug of abuse where they scratch, like usually with meth or something, right? They scratch. I see a lot of twirling and picking of hair, twirling and picking of maybe facial hair. Let me bring that back to the meth thing because Mm. years ago, I was up in upstate New York and they were talking to me about the meth problem in their area. And one of them said, you know, they, we had a, an assistant who was addicted to meth. I had this thought that meth heads were tweakers and how can, how can you not see a meth head in your practice? And they brought up everything that you're saying, you know, it was a slow, gradual thing. And then mm-hmm. they were operational for a while and then it all went to hell but I had thought if you're a meth head, you're, you're tweaking, you're out on the street or whatever. But no, they're, they're in there. They're in there. They're operational, right? Until it gets to the point. Because addiction, addiction to all substance is a progressive disease. Mm-hmm. And progressive because it slowly takes over the body. Now, I, I call the meth the one and done. It's a really highly addictive drug. But the stage of addiction 
can ramp up and take time. And once it's in the throes, it's hard to come out of it. Mm -hmm. So you can function like my husband. Mm -hmm. So people who've heard me speak know my story. My husband knows I tell the story. He functioned really, really well. When people found out he was going to treatment in our tiny town in Colorado, they said, your husband? He's the coolest dude we know. My, he's a rocking skier. He's just, you know, he's the favorite bartender in town. He has a huge <laughs> real estate business. I'm like, you don't see him on the way home, mm. you know? And so he would leave and our house was 30 miles down Valley. My practice and his business were 30 miles up Valley. He would drive 30 miles down to our house. And by the time he'd leave his office and come home, he'd be half in the bag because he'd pick up a six pack and drive down the highway drinking. Wow. Wow. And he'd pound off a six pack. Nobody saw it. And he'd get up and he'd go to work and he'd function. And then he started to drink earlier and earlier and earlier in the day. And then it became the obsession. So that's the psychological change that occurs in addiction is the thought of the substance. Mm. It's the drug seeking. Every It takes over the thought process. Like he said, I used to wake up and go, how many hours till my first drink? Wow. Well, I have a lunch client. Maybe I'll move the lunch client from 12 to 11 and we can have martinis at lunch because that's acceptable. And then maybe we'll go ski and have a couple beers while we'll ski. But it was the obsession with the drug. That's another sign. See, and everything that you just said that he would do would not raise any flags for me. Nope. On the outside, if I were his secretary and he just said, let's move up lunch a little bit, I, would, I wouldn't even think twice about that. That's nope. wild. Yeah. And it's, it's things like that because when he wasn't drinking, he functioned great. And then it got to the point that he functioned great while he was drinking. Mm. And then it moved to, like, I had LASIK surgery and they gave me Oxy for my LASIK, which was crazy. I took one pill and had 29 left, right? Which was ridiculous. I yeah. should have thrown them away. I went to find them because I had another surgery and they were gone. Wow. And so come to find out, he started to add the opiates on top of the drinking. Another characteristic when people are in the throes of addiction is hiding it, mm -hmm. right? So my husband used to hide his vodka in the garage freezer behind the elk meat or in the woodshed. And so maybe in the dental practice, if you have opiates on hand or what, or what have you, are you finding things in the freezer? Is there a bottle of vodka in the freezer, right? Are there things stashed around? Is there marijuana stashed around? Is the office door being locked now when it was never right. before? And right. we had one assistant years ago. Now we know it was cocaine. This is mm. like 20 years ago. But she would go out to her car at lunch every day. And we all ate lunch together. So it was really weird. And she need, she was like, I need my time. I need my time. Well, we found out years later that you know she had moved on. And then we found out, yeah, that was cocaine. But the whole thing of going into the office and staying there that was a tip off for one girl that, that I talked to. And, and also bills not being paid. Things mm -hmm. were slipping. Yep. That's something else that you see too. Absolutely. The personal responsibility goes out the window because the obsession with the drug they're seeking takes over mm. and everything else falls to the wayside. And that, and again, that goes with the progressive nature of addiction because it slowly takes over the body, it takes over physically, and it takes over emotionally as well. There's so many emotions going on within someone who is observing this. And I mm. appreciate that you said this is a human thing, because I think there's many of us that are like, as an employee, what am I supposed to do? But then there's the human side. So I'm, I'm glad that you said that. But here's where I think there's so much concern is I don't want to upset the practice. What if I'm wrong? His family's going to hate me. He's going to fire me, whatever, you know, mm -hmm. and then there's the 
I could lose my job. That's, mm-hmm. that's huge. You know, I could lose my job. What if you really need the job? So mm-hmm. there's so many factors that are in favor of keeping quiet, but that's not the human thing to do. That is so not the human thing to do because that's what we do. That's what we do to people who are addicts. Mm-hmm. So take this out and put it on the street. So how many people listening drive by and they see the beggars on the side? They see people panhandling, asking for money that are obviously homeless. Do you keep going? We normally turn a blind eye like, oop, that's not me. That doesn't affect me. That's not going to come into my life. Oh my goodness, no. You see somebody stumbling through the park, stumbling around. Oh, I'm going to turn a blind eye. That's not me. I had one of my dear friends in Gunnison call me. She had a worker. I won't go into the long story, but she realized that she was drinking on the job and she let her go after trying to help her and help her and help her. And she looked out and she had fallen in the parking lot, face down, busted her front teeth, and she was in about three inches of water, splat face out. (gasps) Wow. And a mom was driving by in the car and the boy said, mom, stop. And she said to him, no, no, we're not getting involved. And he said, mom, stop the car. And he jumped out and they ran into my friend. My friend came out while my friend's partner said, we don't want to get involved. She's Um. like, I have to get involved. So she called me. I ended up going down, taking this girl, Mm -hmm. talking to her, walking her through all of this and finally getting her into detox. She's still sober. That was eight years ago. Wow. And she's still sober. I still keep in touch with her. And I had the conversation with my friend. I said, so what prompted your partner to say, we don't want to get involved? Oh, liability. What if she gets mad at us? What if we get in trouble? I said, I get that. That's the logical business brain. But what about your human heart? What if that person would have died in your parking lot? How would you have felt then? She said, that's why I had to call you, Edie. I couldn't let it go. I didn't want to. I had to help her because she's a nice person. When we look at that and we take that into the office to go back to our original conversation, by turning a blind eye, that creates more emotion in us, negative emotion in us, the blind eye turner. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So are you feeling the the guilt as well? Yes. So people turn a blind eye and like, that's not my problem. And then if you don't have great boundaries and compartmentalize things that most humans, we're not built like that. And so what happens when you turn a blind eye and you continue to watch it, the emotion, whatever that emotion is, anger, sadness, guilt, anxiety, it starts to ratchet up. The more blind eye we keep turning, the more it cranks up that negative emotion in us. Interesting. So then it explodes in anger. Yes. Rather than compassion. Exactly. And so if we step back, and I always like to say, if we step back and see things differently, if you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. I open every program I ever give with that, regardless of what I'm teaching or, or coaching on. And so see things differently. Look at this person as a human being. Addiction is a disease. When my husband was going through it, man, I tell you what, I was the worst. I used to point at him and say, what the heck is the matter with you? You're going to lose all of this and that and your daughter and me and I. And would you just stop drinking already? Mm. I was one of those angry people. Well, he couldn't on his own. His body was physically changed. His brain chemistry was physically changed. He has a disease. There was a brain disease because it altered the neural pathways in his brain. So he had to relearn how to function and operate without a substance altering his brain chemical. That's like relearning to walk almost. It sounds like it's it really is. very similar. Interesting. It's everything. And so if we take that thought process into how we would deal with something in our practice, that's where we make our money. That's our livelihood. You can look at it one of two ways. You can go, 
I can't say anything because I don't want to get involved. I'm going to avoid and I don't going to get fired. Or you can put your human heart on and say, this is a human being that may need help. And what studies have shown, Teresa, true studies from NYU and NIDH have shown brief interventions by healthcare professionals. And we are healthcare professionals. So it could be a assistant hygienist business person to the dentist, a dentist to his auxiliary team. Mm-hmm. We're healthcare professional, a brief intervention, even just a simple conversation, say, hey, you know, I'll use my husband. Hey, Chris, I've noticed some big changes in you and I'm concerned. So like Debbie Z says, I see something, I'm concerned. See something, say something, right? So I see something, I'm concerned. Are you open to have a conversation with me? And you should prepare yourself to being like smacked down. Is that yeah. going to be the reaction probably? It could be. It depends on where they are and it depends on the approach, mm-hmm. right? Um, because there is a, there's this cycle of change that leads right into the Proheshka cycle of change, which ties into addiction. So there's denial, aware, intent. Um, there's active change. There's sustained change. And then, of course, there's relapse. Mm-hmm. If you are communicating with somebody who's in stage one, which is denial, nope, I don't have a problem like my husband was. Mm-hmm. I would say, I'm concerned you're you're killing yourself. And he would take his beer bottle and drink in front of me and like, I don't have a problem. You're the problem. Get off my back. Total <laughs> denial. So be prepared for that if you have that conversation with your teammate. And then something triggers. Something happens. And for my husband, it was waking up one last time in Mexico, brought home by security in a blinding lights out, nobody home, drunk. And I said, I don't want him. Take him away. And they shoved him in the door in Cabo San Lucas. And he woke up and it was destroyed. It was the end. Wow. And so then that's what took him to be aware. Now, there's a, a, a thought out there that says they have to hit rock bottom to seek change. Sometimes that's true. Mm-hmm. I've seen it where it does, they're not at rock bottom. There's something that triggers in them that oh, kicks in the awareness. And so it's the, you know, maybe I have a point. My whole team is saying to me, ah, you know, we just lost 10 patients last week. Wow. Or I now have five bills that are unpaid. Yeah. So there's an awareness, some kind of trigger or my receivables mm-hmm. are through the roof or I'm not on. And why are people not showing up? There's that awareness. Yeah. So it used to be fine. What happened? Why has she changed so much or what, what's going on there? And the paying of the bills from a doctor point of view, that's, I've heard that so many times. Oh yeah. And then there's, if there is not abuse, there's financial pressure, which is a huge precursor to being able to go down that path. Financial stress is huge for dentists. And a lot of times they don't talk about how important it is for them to be successful financially, because not only they're their family is depending on them, but the family of all of their auxiliaries depends on them. And I don't think a lot of team members realize that, that that pressure is on them, but it is real and it's intense. So that's also what I was hearing with COVID is, you know, I can't provide for my team. I, you know, these girls depend on me or what. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was a tough period. That was really tough. And I think people are still feeling it. Absolutely. It's the stressors. So what's the trigger? Financial stresses are a huge trigger. If we peel the onion with people with addictions, there is always an underlying sadness, pain, hurt, habit, hang up, something, sadness and pain underneath that's driving the use. Mm -hmm. Always. It's also a misconception that happy people can't be depressed. 
<laughs> Can we talk well. about that a little bit? And, and only because my family of office managers, you know, we're supposed to motivate and, and keep people going and the team's supposed to depend on us to be happy and smiling. And inside, we just want to go crawl in a hole. Yeah. Can we address the strong people out there that really just don't feel strong? Can we talk about that? You're talking to one. <laughs> I remember the, I was standing when I shared this with you, going to my last gig in March, my, what I didn't know was going to be my last gig of 10 months, right? In-person gig, let me rephrase. Mm-hmm. And I had 20, I think it was 26 gigs canceled in two days. And it was a domino effect. And all I could think about was, oh my goodness, I don't have anybody but me paying my bills. Yeah, I'm, I'm blessed with, the, my husband is a good man, good provider. He's a pastor. We have a child. And but my income is an integral part of our life, of, of our life. Of course. And I thought, oh my gosh. So the financial stress has started to kick in. Mm-hmm. And then of course, then the webinars and everything go on. But through all of this, then it came, you know, we're the ones that people call for advice, right? I know you do, right? And I have, I'm blessed with great people who call me and I get to mentor them as much as they mentor me. And, and sometimes it's, it's hard. I would find myself uplifting and empowering and, and helping them move to their next level and asking all the right questions and helping them find their groove. And I'd get off the phone and get on the couch and cry. And nobody would think about reaching out to the yous or the me's or the strong people because, oh, they're, ha- they're okay. They're strong. They don't need anything. Yeah. I went into a pit, a dark, deep pit, like I haven't been in since my husband, right before he went to recovery 14 years ago. Wow. It was dark and nobody knew. Yeah. You know, well, I, I know one did, you know, I had my one friend, Linda, she knew mm-hmm. and because of that she's my only person that I really talked to about her, or Linda, well, Kathy, you know, Kathy, yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. But, and that was it. Nobody else would think about it. Nobody would think that you and I or me would be that kind of person that, and I failed miserably on some business agreements miserably. And I made amends to those people. And that's just not, that's not you. That's no, you. no. I, I definitely had those moments too. I mean, I had the same cancellations that just mm-hmm. it didn't go hit. It was just nuts. I did a Facebook live for the office managers association where I talked about things that I made mistakes as, as a manager. And I ended with this. If you are feeling stressed, you are not alone. You need to talk to somebody. And of everything I said during that webinar, the one thing that people emailed me the most about was the fact that, oh my gosh, I do feel stressed. You know, what am I supposed to do with this? And how am I supposed to keep a good, sh- you know, the charade is on. I, I, get, I want somebody to hold me, you know? <laughs> yes. So sometimes we want to be the little spoon, you know? <laughs> yes. So yes. It, it's something that I know a lot of my listeners are probably feeling or have felt. And it's not abnormal. It's not abnormal. It's not fun. Right. <laughs> it's not abnormal. And, and it is and a- it's okay. It's okay not to be okay. And it's okay to go, I need help. Yeah. You know, thank goodness I had some good people in my corner. You know, I, I mean, I have a lot of like you, we have lots of friends all over because we live on the road and we've got friends in every state, but there's a core group, right? Everybody has their little core. And my core group happens to be in different states. Yeah. So I can't get in the car and go to my friend's house, right? It doesn't exist for me where we currently live. If I hadn't had that, I, I don't know where I'd be right now. I really don't. It's just, and don't be afraid to the listeners out there, y'all. It's okay to admit you're hurting, that you need help, and that you can't do this alone. Because there is a whole host of people that have been where you are, are where you are, or want to help you through where you are to help get you where you're going. So, one of the, I think actually, when I was on Facebook, I think I saw you had posted a cartoon 
a drawing. Was that you? Had posted a drawing? Today? Yeah, and then somebody else was posting other drawings. And yeah. maybe I'll take a screenshot and put it in the show notes. But one of them said, the scariest word or the bravest word is help. I think that's what oh it said. Oh my gosh. The bravest yes. word is help. And I was like, wow, that's so fitting for what we're going to talk about today. You just need to ask for the help. And it's not, it's not like help come save me. It's just maybe help listen to me. Maybe that's all it is. It's help. And you know, and help is not weakness. Right. Asking for help is not weakness. And, you know, I had to learn that. And that's, that was a hard lesson for me because, you know, I'm the leader. That's what I do. I'm eating. I'm okay. Everything's fine. Right. You know, I'm, this is just what I do and everything's great. And I get up on stage and I perform and, and then I go back to my room and go, now what? Now what? Yeah. Right. And well, so let's talk a little bit about the, the actual substance abuse part of it though, because I, I do know it's been happening. The risk is out there now, especially with all the drivers and the, the underlying factors. So you have a person who is brave enough to do the little brief encounters that you were talking about. So she's doing that. She's stepping in, getting rebuffed, but continuing. Where do we go from there? Say somebody say that there's an inclination of, okay, maybe I do need help, but they don't know where to start. What, what do I do when I get that sign that, okay, maybe they're willing to seek some help? What do I do? Yes. So we talk about when to get there, we talk about motivational interviewing, right? And asking open-ended questions. And there is a, a process that's called ORS, O-A-R-S. If we can remember the ORS when we're in communication, it's a non-judgmental, non-threatening, meeting the person where they are, meeting your patient, meeting your doctor, meeting the person where they are in their journey through addiction. And ORS, O, is asking the open-ended questions. So, Chris, what you told, what you're telling me is the hangovers are starting to be a problem in your life. Would that, is that what I heard you say? You know, we know the communication basics, right, open ended. Right. And then affirmations. Well, I understand. And you can go into the feel felt found, the Walter Haley feel felt found. I, I, I understand how you feel. I used to feel that way myself. And what I found is when I sought treatment or when my husband sought treatment, here's what changed. And I and, and acknowledge what they're feeling. So that's A, R, reflection. So you reflect back what you heard them say and then summarize the conversation. And then you take the steps to move forward with the change. But it's an agreed upon step. So it could be as simple as they've acknowledged there's a problem. They're seeking help. Have resources. Mm-hmm. So the number one thing you could do would be to refer to a healthcare provider. Like if if they're a faith based, if they're a faith or a faith believing person, there are faith based recovery places like Celebrate Recovery. Mm-hmm. That is a it's not an inpatient treatment, but it's definitely a place to go in healing. And it's a Christ centered twelve step program, for lack of a better description. You can have pamphlets in your practice that give people information on recovery. You can. Have relation. I build relationships with healthcare providers or substance abuse counselors, mental health counselors in your area or neighborhood. Have their information handy. What about the dental societies? Do they have resources typically for this? The dental societies they usually tag in when there's been a problem. Oh, okay. So not in the right. intervention step. You know, I could be mistaken. There are. You could call, and they would have the same kind of information that you could supply. Yeah. I heard you say the word intervention. Mm-hmm. And so that leads me to think about, so how do you, do you stage an intervention? 
Is that right? And that's a scary thought because there's a TV show on intervention and it's just so much drama. So you think, oh my goodness, this is terrible. Like this poor person is getting, you know, attacked or whatever, but I, I, let's go, let's go on with that. So yes, intervention is what I said. (laughs) Seek out stuff in your area. Like we refer a lot to the place where my husband went. We call, I call it charm school and the rehab. And so we send people there all the time. You know, my, my husband has some of the counselors on speed dial in your church. If you have Christian counseling in your church, you can find your church in your community, in your hospital. There's counseling within your hospital, non-denominational counseling, meetings, AA, Al-Anon meetings. They work. You know, the mm-hmm. saying is they work if you work it. Go because when you seek out like-minded people who are in the same place that you are, it becomes a safe haven. And so the anonymity, like um, in our group, we have a we have a group that is for pastors. Mm-hmm. So the pastors are safe because they come from different churches, right, and different congregations, and they're amongst pa- they're amongst their peers. Mm-hmm. Which I imagine would be attractive for a dentist to be yes, other dentist, a dental peer, yes, or a manager, even a manager to have because yep. we have a whole different set of stuff <laughs> as hygienists. Exactly. Well, think about think about how scary it is for a clinician to go to a meeting, a public meeting, and your patients are there, even though it's anonymous. Mm-hmm. You know, your patients are there, and you go, "Whoa!" So there's that fear. So then they feel isolated even more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you don't want to ever get published on any pages. Like that's the goal, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to keep it confidential. Exactly. So I've left resources. I have. I'm starting to guide that person in the right way. I'm not married to this person. I am an employee. At what point, I mean, am I there the whole way? I mean, if I want to be, I know that that that's possible. But there's probably people out there that are like, okay, I'm the office manager. I'm trying to help out, but they have their own life too. Like how much is expected of (laughs) people to take them or the next step? I mean, does that, I know it sounds cold, but this is something that's brought up. Well, it's called boundaries. Okay. You know, and the hardest thing about being involved with somebody who's an addict, whether it's a coworker or spouse or family member, is the boundaries. And what what people with who don't have boundaries or are new into it, what we tend to do is try to fix. Hmm. You can't fix, right? The only thing we can do is look internally and look inside and say, how am I enabling this behavior? And stand for yourself. So you can give all the information. And then you cross the line where it becomes enmeshment and becomes massively codependent when you pick them up and you physically, you know what I mean? If you continue, uh, did you call? Did you call? Did you call? You can't do that. Okay. Some people can, but I encourage and teach healthy boundaries. And then it comes to a point as a human being, if you're in a situation that isn't changing and causes you internal stress because of what somebody else's actions are doing, or could potentially harm a patient, mm-hmm. do you stay? Now, see, you just brought up something very curious because what if a patient is being affected? What if you, I mean, you have a duty to the patient. Without a doubt. Wow, what a tough situation. Have you coached anybody through that? I have. <laughs> I mean, how, how, would you, how do you handle that when you see somebody is not doing the right thing clinically? Clinically, right? So we do no harm, right? That's part of, that's our oath is to do no harm. And if you are seeing harm being done to your patient and you don't do anything, you can be culpable, right? So you can be, if you see it and you know it and something happens and the patient says they file a suit or something happens and 
Edie was there. She watched it. She wow. assisted. She, you know, my expert on this, my go-to is talking to dentists who are in recovery. They're in, anonymous. And mm-hmm. so I ask them their que- these questions and they say, I wish somebody would have stepped in. Is that common then that they say that? Because that's something that I want. I don't want us to mind read the dentist, but there right. has to be for me to do this, to put my life on the line, not life, but my career on the line. I have to know that it's wanted at some level or else, mm-hmm. you know, what am I doing here? Right. So in hindsight, you know, vision is always clear, clearer in hindsight, right? So when, once the person is through the use and they're into their recovery, we need to grace them. But what I hear all the time is, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry and thank you. Um, I'm so sorry and thank you. Thank you for not giving up. Yeah. Thank you for being mean. <laughs> thank you for being hard. Thank you for taking a stand. And so I encourage people, if you're in a practice and you are working for somebody who is using and you're aware of it while they're treating patients, I would not want to practice in that setting. I really wouldn't. What is the thought around, well, and obviously not somebody who has gone through this because that's not what I'm thinking of, but the person who says, I do this on my off time, leave me alone. I do this when I go home. But we as employers and colleagues, we have to step in when it affects their work, right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Because that's definitely what I hear is I know that they smoke pot on the, on, at home. I mean, you're in Colorado for crying out right. loud. You know, <laughs> I know they do it at home. So, you know, what if they can handle it or what? It, but that's, you have to be able to say, look, this is affecting what's going yeah. at work. Well, then you look at drugs that hang out in the body. So if you have a random drug testing and you're smoking dope and you smoke on Sunday, mm. you can test hot on Monday because the THC is going to hang out and live in the adipose tissue. So it's going in the brain tissue. You can test hot. Wow. And it depends on how much you smoke is how long you continue to test hot for THC. Mm. And so then you take alcohol. You're not drinking on Monday, but you wake up and you're throwing up and you're hungover and you have shaky hands. And by noon, you're going through withdrawals. That's going to affect, even though you only do it on the weekends, right? Right. It affects your clinical proficiency. I remember one uh, manager I was talking to, she said, I would never want to be the patient that's the first patient after Super Bowl Sunday. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And I thought, wow, that's funny. Yeah. But you know, you don't think about that kind of stuff until it's maybe every Monday morning, you don't want to be that patient every Monday morning. Right. I've had offices that gather together and in morning huddles. Mm-hmm. I just I just had this come across my plate yesterday. I got the text from the doctor. Morning huddle. Or thinking they're going into a training and they surrounded him and uh-huh. said, We love you. We're concerned. This is what we're seeing. You need help. We need help. We can't practice like this. Good for that team. And it was supposed to be a fifteen minute meeting, it turned into an hour and a half. And he texted me at mm-hmm. the end in tears. In tears. Now, is it because they don't necessarily know how much of an impact it is or because now they have to do some work? I mean, what do you think that the tears, what was that about, you think? Realization, guilt, fear. Okay. They found me out. I can't hide. Mm. And then you think about when you use, there is an underlying, and I, and I know this because I talked to my husband and hundreds and hundreds of people in recovery. It's like at the point, there's this underlying I don't want to say subconscious, but subconscious, like, I wish somebody would notice. I wish somebody would notice. Interesting. It's a scary, it's a scary disease. Substance abuse and misuse is, substance use disorder is tricky. It's easily, you can hide it. And a lot of the drugs that 
drugs of abuse are accepted into, hey, that's okay. Right, right. Yeah. Alcohol in particular. Yeah. Okay. So I, I want to sort of give them a quick, like, I guess it's just a, almost like a starter kit of things to look out for. So I heard you say, uh, well, I said mood change, which you were like, yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And you said change in appearance. Change in appearance. Said sneaking away, I think you said, or being alone. And can you give me some more just to keep an eye out for? Being secretive, noticing a change in appearance or smell, noticing a change in work ethic, notice things missing, noticing a change in clinical outcomes, Mm. if we're talking strictly dental, finding stashes, being secretive. Sacrificing, I, I I can't make it to my son's game, or I don't need to. We we don't need to do the morning huddle anymore because I need to come in a half an hour later. Or I'm going to go out to lunch on my own, or like the person, I'm going to go sit in my car. Mm-hmm. Changes like that, body changes, denial. I don't have a problem. Denial is the big one. The mood change is it mm-hmm. extremes or is it? It's it's it seems like it would be extremes that you would notice, right? Because I know my doctor would be grumpy, but that's not anything to worry about. He'd just be grumpy. Is he grumpy every morning? Every Monday morning? And well, then he's happy at 12? Yeah, after I don't he know. comes back from lunch? It's been so long, but yeah, I know what you mean. Like, you you see a, what I'm saying? Yeah. Are they grumpy because in the morning they might have a hangover? And then after lunch, they might fix their hangover and then they come back fine? Mm. You know, it's this up and down and mood swings. The solitude and secrecy, I think we talked about that, like going out to your car for lunch. The, oh, dropping hobbies or activities. Say the doctor was really involved in the dental society or had study clubs or helped ran a study club and then just stopped and slowly backed away from all of the other commitments. Oh, interesting. Okay. I hadn't thought of that at all. Yes. Withdrawal from society, basically. Mm-hmm. Wow. Calling in sick. Yeah. Always being late. Even right then, just that list oh, there yeah. would be enough to alarm anybody that's working with. I mean, it's one thing if you're Say you're a financial analyst and you go in and you fire up the computer. Your Excel spreadsheets are not going to get mad at you for being 10 minutes late, right? But right. you have patients who are depending on you. You have a team that depends on you. So it's a little bit harder, I think, to be late all the time and secretive and all of that. So I would imagine it would it would pop pretty easily for us to see that. It would. But now think about it. It's like two minutes late. Then it's three. Then mm. it's five. Then they're okay for a couple of days. And then it's seven minutes late. And then they're okay. And then it's 10. It's the progressive upward climb into decline. <laughs> what about the physicality? As far as um, I've read that if you're really coked up, the term, you know, your eyes are wide, you've got jitters. Is What else am I looking for with that if there's like active abuse? Well, opiate, when you use opiate, you get that pinned, you know, wide eyed, you get real pinned tiny pupils. Uh, Clamminess, increased heart rate. Dry mouth? Dry mouth with some, yep, xerostomia, constantly putting in mints or breath uh, refreshment, mm. whatever it may be, swishing with mouthwash. When it's extensive, it can permeate through and you can smell it. You know, we've all been around those that uh, on dental meetings where you walk in, you're like, whoo, you must have had some whiskey last night, exactly. right? And you can smell it. You start to see puffiness, weight gain or weight loss change. If you're somebody who's using a needle that you change in appearance, always wearing long sleeves. Granted, we're in the dental practice, so we are covered up. Oh, we're really covered up now. This is the human, the human, um, human hat as well. Wow. So there's just, you just watch for the changes, changes in mood, behavior, appearance, finances. Finances are a huge thing. When the financial struggles start to really kick in, like, well, where did that come from? Right. You know, is it a gambling addiction? 
Are you on the streets because you can't write any more prescriptions? So you're going to buy the oxy on the streets around the corner. My goodness. Wow. Wow. You've seen it all. Oh my goodness. Okay. So let's, let's move back a little bit to, and then we'll wrap it up because I, I knew the time was going to fly. <laughs> I know. I just looked at the fly. clock and went, oh my gosh, it's almost over. <laughs> <laughs> the office managers who are strong, the doctors out there who are being strong, as far as they're concerned, do you have any advice for them other than just reach out? Are there groups for that? Listeners, you should hear, you should know this. When Edie and I got on the phone earlier and talked about this during our like pregame, We both were commiserating of how we've been feeling with this because, you know, we do have people call us all of the time. And and we we both made the comment that we can teach it, but sometimes we don't take our own advice. So so that and and that I think is what a strong leader feels is that they can fix everybody else. But with me, it's not that easy. Do you have anything to say? Any any words of wisdom that you would give, (laughs) but maybe not necessarily take? Yeah, right. So maybe if I say it today, Teresa, it'll kick into my stubborn little brain. But the biggest thing, I love you. The biggest thing is self-care, is boundaries. You know, for y'all who are out there and struggling with it, read that book by um, John Baker, Life Seeing Choices. But there's another book that's called Boundaries. And it is great. It's a great read. It's been around forever. I pick it up and read it at least once a year to refresh my memory. And it's taking care of yourself. No one enough is enough for you. And once you set those boundaries, stick with them. My therapist, who's also one of my dear friends, my one of my horse buddies back in Colorado, she used to say, Edie, imagine setting up an electric fence like you do when we go riding for the horses. Like, yeah. So set your boundary called an electric fence. Turn it on. If somebody comes too close, Turn it higher and move it further away. So increase your boundary. Just keep moving that that electric fence back because personal experience with my husband, he kept running into my boundary Mm. all the time, all the time. Sometimes it would break. Mm. And I was a miserable boundary boundary keeper for a long time. But the minute I kept cranking it up and moving it back and moving it back, he went, I can't get through that electric fence. Mm. I'll just meet her where she is. So it took me standing for myself and my own care and feeding of my soul to step in a break away from me being enmeshed in what's going on with his life. I love that. You do. You have to, I mean, that's a good way of thinking about you have to take care of your soul. I mean, it it can get beaten and we're so used to fixing everybody else. Oh my goodness. Exactly. (laughs) We need to keep that core strength, you know, or else it it just gets chipped away little by little. So we're going to have to check in with each other in a month to see if we did anything about it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I get to go back on the road Sunday. So I actually get, I was talking to a friend. I'm like, oh my goodness, I don't know if I'm going to know how to behave in a restaurant. I, I, will I know which fork to pick up? <laughs> yeah, I have all sorts of questions. Like, what's the procedure now? I, I go right. on my next trip too. And that's like, what do I do with the plane? Do I get on the plane? Do I get wait to be escorted onto the plane? I don't know. I don't know. It's going to be crazy. Well, I'll keep you posted. Yeah, definitely. For those of you who are struggling with the same thing we are, you're not alone. It is so, so common with strong leaders in the office. And yeah, you're not alone. So, and if you do have somebody who is struggling with addiction, with depression, it's not, it's not abnormal for you to want to at first say, wait a second, why do I have to deal with this? But then the human side of you takes over. So I hope that this has helped you identify all of that. So any parting words, Miss Edie? My one little tip to everyone would be, we are healthcare providers and we're human beings. Don't be afraid to get involved because people struggling with addiction, they're scared 
they're feeling guilty, mm-hmm. they are isolated, and let's stop pushing them in a corner. Like nobody puts baby in a corner. <laughs> open your arms, keep your boundary, but open your arms and meet them where they are. Because a brief intervention by a healthcare provider has been shown to help people seek treatment more often than not. I think that's so important. Brief interventions. We can do mm-hmm. that. We don't have yes, to commit we can. to a big long road of recovery, but we can do brief interventions. If anything, just to see if we're on the right track. Exactly. Just to check in. Mm-hmm. We should check in with each other more often. I mean, we as industry people should. Yep. I mean, how are you doing out there? How are you feeling? Because I don't think we do that. We talk about a lot of other stuff, you know, knitting and and our kids (laughs) and all that kind of stuff. But we don't necessarily say, hey, how are you? Right. I think we need to do that. Maybe I'll put up a Facebook post on that just to check in. So how do they find you? How do they get in touch with you? Because I should say, not only is she amazing on this, but she's amazing on clinical topics as well. Surgical implants. Like that's your, you love that stuff. It's my wheelhouse. It is. So how do they find you to come and present or to talk to? Yep, you can go to my website. Now, it's not one of these fancy, fancy websites. It's a pretty simple website, and it's edgibson.com, and that's E-D-I-E-G-I-B-S-O-N.com. And my email is really Edie. It's Edie. It's really Edie. (laughs) It's really easy. It's Edie, E-D-I-E, at edgibson.com. Simple, simple. And I'll link all of that and the the books that you mentioned. I'll, I'll have links to that as well. Awesome. And then hopefully uh, you have made a difference. I think you have in someone's day. Thank you so much for being on. I so appreciate you. Thank you, Teresa. You made a difference in my day. I appreciate you. Can't wait to hug you next time. I'm hugging. Here we go. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And dear listeners, thank you again so much for spending your time with me. We're all super busy. So thank you for making time for me today. The show notes will have any links that we referenced in this episode. You can also find links for my book and for my live events and webinar schedule. I speak often around the country on management and insurance issues. Come hang out with me in one of my classes. I promise you'll laugh and learn.